savvy attorneys can do a lot with social media. And when we look at some of the the reports that are coming out about use of social media, uh, 50% of Americans are social. There's an increasing use of social media by 50 to 70-year-olds. It's not just for the younger generation. So it's really infecting our life in a way that we need to start paying more attention and using it as a tool and understanding what it means for our litigation. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a scorching hot Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where it is a beautiful day here today as well. Yeah, we have a 40-degree swing between our beaches and our, our uh, inland temperatures, so it's pretty warm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Bob, we should be taking this time instead to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com, AppRiver, an email and web security experts. You can find out more about AppRiver at appriver.com, and PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, you can go to pclaw.com slash radio. Well, Bob, for many people, social media has consumed their everyday life. From tweets to Facebook status updates, social media has virtually taken over how we communicate with the outside world. It's also found its way into our courtrooms through lawsuits where it can be used as evidence anywhere from a criminal case to a defamation suit in a civil case. So has there been a surge in litigation when it comes to social media and how are attorneys monitoring their clients and adapting to the ins and outs of social media when it comes to litigation? Well, uh, we have two guests today who created uh, somewhat of a buzz after they presented a session at ABA Tech Show 2012 in Chicago titled Social Media for Litigators. It was later reprinted uh, in Law Practice Today. Uh, And uh, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about social media and various lawsuits uh, ranging from employment to, to criminal and what attorneys need to know about all of this. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's bring on the two guests. First of all, joining us today is Antigone Payton, founder and CEO of Cloudigy Law, PLLC, an intellectual property and technology law firm. Antigone has litigated IP cases covering a wide range of technologies and products from pharmaceuticals and medical devices to apparel, internet, and aerospace technologies. She also teaches other attorneys, law students, and uh, and advises companies on legal issues relating to e-discovery, social media, cloud computing, and international data transfer and privacy restrictions. You can find out more about her and her practice at cloudigylaw.com. That's cloudigylaw.com. And follow her on Twitter at Antigone Payton and at Cloudigy Law. So welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Antigone. Thanks for having me. And Bob, our next guest is Ernie Svensson. Ernie has practiced law for a large law firm in New Orleans for 20 years, specializing in commercial litigation. For the past six years, he's been a solo practitioner. 
His Ernie the Attorney weblog, started in 2002, was twice chosen by the American Bar Association as one of the top 100 weblogs in the country. More recently, he started PaperlessChase.com, which is the website of a CLE company that provides seminars to lawyers on general technology issues. It can also be found on Twitter as at Ernie Attorney. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Ernie. It's great to be here, Greg. Well, Ernie, let's start with you. Uh, are you seeing a surge in social media-based evidence and claims when it comes to litigation? Yeah, I, I think we definitely are seeing a surge. I mean, it's uh, it's taking a while to reach the various practice areas, but it's definitely hot and going strong in the matrimonial world. Um, there was a survey not too long ago uh, done by the National Law Journal, and uh, matrimonial lawyers were surveyed, and 81% of them said they were seeing an increase in social media evidence. They said Facebook is the, quote, unrivaled leader for online divorce evidence, and 66% of them said Facebook is their primary evidence source. Well, Antony, let's take a look at some of the cases that you spotlighted during your session. Uh, one of the cases was this a, a Virginia wrongful death case in which improper handling of social media uh, compromised the outcome. Uh, can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, this is an interesting case because it highlights how important it is to understand how social media can be used effectively in litigation and how social media really stays out there forever. There's no such thing as a delete button, and that became clear in this wrongful death case. Uh, this Virginia case, um, it certainly was a wrongful death suit, and the way the social media issue started is the defendant in this case served discovery on the plaintiff whose wife had passed away in a tragic car accident. With that discovery, they requested his Facebook information and attached to it a picture uh, with him uh, and a number of other adults, and he was wearing a shirt emblazoned with, I love hot moms, and uh, clutching a beer can, and he seemed to be having a good time. Now, of course, this picture was taken after the tragic death of his wife. So after that happened, uh, then there was an issue of getting the, face, the Facebook information. And the attorney representing the plaintiff and his paralegal investigated the photo. They determined, you know, this is probably from his Facebook page. But instead of instructing the client to preserve the materials, they actually directed him to clean it up, which is a big no-no. They didn't want a blow-up of this information at trial. They also instructed their client to deactivate his account and then told the other party when they served their discovery responses that he didn't have an active Facebook account on the day that they served it, which was partially true and partially not true. Well, of course, the defendant pushed for this information. It was clear he had a Facebook page. They knew something was up. And the court gave them access. Uh, then it was a matter of damage control on behalf of the plaintiff and his attorney. So they had to give up emails between the plaintiff and his attorney and paralegal. They had to provide Facebook logs. And miraculously, when they restored the Facebook page that they had deleted, the information was still there because Facebook saves pretty much everything. That's their bread and butter. They like information and mining information and sharing it is how they make their money. So uh, there was an adverse inference 
that the court uh, used to instruct the jury at trial based on these misdeeds during the discovery period. But that wasn't the end of the story. Uh, there was actually a huge jury award on behalf of the plaintiff. But after trial, uh, during post-trial mo- motions, the court decided that it wasn't going to take any more of these shenanigans by the plaintiff and his counsel. So the court ordered his attorney to pay $522,000 for the reasonable expenses relating to the violation of the court rules and other discovery violations, fraudulent discovery responses, and omissions, frankly, of information uh, after they said that it was no longer available. Now, the client was ordered to pay $180,000 for obeying his counsel's instructions relating to Facebook. And the court reduced the $8.6 million verdict to a $4 million verdict for the appropriate inappropriate conduct. And it referred his attorney to uh, the Virginia Ethics Board relating to potential code of professional responsibility violations. Ernie, that's a, that's a pretty severe... Uh sanction and uh you know pretty good slap there what's what's your thought about the the punishment for that and are we going to be seeing more of this well i think the punishment seems to make sense given the egregious conduct by the lawyer i think even without the social media component that's just spoliation of evidence the lawyer should know better and he got caught and he paid the consequences um are we going to see more of it yeah i think we probably are going to see more problems because um, it, people are discovering social media, or at least lawyers are discovering social media contains ripe fruit that they should try to discover. And some of them will make bad decisions. The clients will make bad decisions. Um, and I think that's really the thing that lawyers need to focus on is when this comes up, they need to tell their clients day one in writing not to delete anything um, and not to post anything new. I wonder how much of this is it is attributable to the fact that that uh, well the, the the people who become clients who become lawyers clients don't don't really understand uh, the the protection or lack of protection available to them in in social media. I mean, it, it was like, there was just that case uh, it was just a week or two ago out in New York in which a, a judge ordered the, the production of uh, five years worth of tweets or something for an Occupy. Uh, protester uh, who was uh, uh, tweeting anonymously, the judge saying basically there's no expectation of privacy uh, in tweeting, uh, that if you're tweeting, it's the equivalent of kind of screaming out an open window into the street. Uh, you know, so Tiggany, how much of this is, 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 is really due to the fact that, that people just don't understand what they're doing when they're posting stuff in Facebook and on Twitter and, and whatever else? Um, yeah, well, I think it, it, it's, it's, um, it's definitely due to people not comprehending either that they're, what they say is going to go beyond an audience that they intended it for initially. That's definitely been happening. I mean, it started with blogs when blogs, you know, popped up and, it, and it's the, the problem of, uh, having access to a tool that lets you talk and hit send very quickly. So email was the first step, but email is to a defined audience, which, of course, can forward the emails. But when you start putting things on Facebook or especially Twitter, which doesn't even require anybody to log in, it's available to everybody everywhere in the world, you know, for as long as they can retrieve it. And And there's a key quote in one of the cases where the judge 
faced with the question of whether this sort of evidence was relevant to discovery, uh, and he ruled it was, said that what makes this kind of information unique is that it's giving you um, insight into somebody's state of mind at the time that they post. And I think that's an unusual situation. We've never had that before. You know, you, you, you might have what somebody wrote in a letter, but that's usually thoughtful and it goes to a defined audience. Now you're getting the state of mind of people at the time that things are occurring. And that's why this stuff is so valuable in litigation and so dangerous. Well, Antigone, where, where, where is all this headed? I mean, there's been some situations where you've, uh, I think you, in your session at the uh, ABA Tech Show, you talked about a uh, New York Police Department complaint page and the arresting officer. How bad is this going to get? Well, I, I think it's just going to become uh, more newsworthy, and we're going to hear more about this as attorneys become uh, more savvy with social media and how to use it offensively and, frankly, what they need to do defensively in order to educate their clients and start roving around the Internet and mining social media sites for information that is publicly available uh, and and as the judge said, you know, shouting out the window and, and free to the public. Um, savvy attorneys can do a lot with social media. And when we look at some of the, the reports that are coming out about use of social media, uh, 50% of Americans are social. There's an increasing use of social media by 50 to 70-year-olds. It's not just for the younger generation. So it's really infecting our life in a way that we need to start paying more attention and using it as a tool and understanding what it means for our litigation. Ernie, uh, Craig just alluded to this, this uh, New York Police Department case. Uh, you talk about it uh, in your presentation, uh, an arresting officer who kind of got, got caught up uh, by Facebook. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was the case where there was a, uh, a parade in New York in 2010, and it was uh, designed to celebrate West Indian Americans. And one of the people who was arrested on that day was a West Indian, and he was arrested for gun possession. And before the trial began, uh, a couple of days or weeks maybe, the public defender who was assigned to represent him uh, decided to search around on Facebook, and he found a page that was created. It was a group page um, entitled No More uh, West Indian Day Detail. And it was a page created by New York City police officers and it had many pages of commentary, I think 70 pages when he captured it and printed it out. And it contained a lot of hateful comments about that the, they were savages and animals and so forth. And so um, it, the New York poli police officer who had arrested the defendant had participated in those comments. And as I said, the public defender had printed out 70 pages of the comments, um, which was fortunate because two days later, the page was taken down and had disappeared. Uh, the case went to trial, the defendant was acquitted, and I guess the moral of the story is, you know, besides the obvious one of don't post things onto Facebook and think that people aren't going to see them like the police officers did, but the real moral of the story was that the public defender knew to search, and he knew when he found something useful to grab it immediately, because getting that kind of information becomes tricky when you don't get it yourself but have to ask the service uh, company to provide it. Well, it's also a, a kind of a 
in and of itself, it serves as a vehicle for defamation. I mean, there's a situation where uh, back last year, Courtney Love settled a lawsuit for nearly $437,000 with a, a fashion designer that she made defamatory comments about it on Twitter. So it, it doesn't really... It's just a. Is it really Antigone? Just a different medium than we've experienced before, and it's really much of the same. I, I think the issues are the same, but this question of being able to take back or delete as a particular issue with social media, or frankly anything on the internet, uh, and and again because of the culture of social media, it's very informal. Uh, it can be very reactionary. This is a prime platform for people to say things, whether intended or unintended, that cause these kinds of problems, including defamation suits. What about this question? You, you would kind of one of the issues you address in your article is, is that of sort of who owns your your Twitter account. This this New York case recently kind of also put another spin on that, which is that question of. What is the obligation of one of these service providers to defend you when you're participating either anonymously or in a, in a closed uh, group? Um, you know, some it seems that it, it, in this New York case, at least Twitter went to some lengths to try and uh, resist a, a subpoena uh, to reveal the identity of the tweeter there. But, you know, Ernie, do you have, do you have thoughts on on what the uh, provider's obligations are here and to what extent they should be attempting to uh, prevent uh, subpoenas uh, uh, and discovery of their participants, uh, you know, somewhat social media, private social media activity? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question for lawyers because it comes up and they want to, you know, they want to get the information and they want to get it from the source, ideally, and then the source, be it Facebook or Twitter, um, doesn't want to provide it. And I guess there are a lot of reasons why they wouldn't want to. I'm sure not the least of which is they don't want to get in the business of setting up a whole new legal department just to respond to this. That's not what they're in the business of doing. I'm sure that's one part of it. I think another part of it is, I would guess, concern over what would happen if this information is disclosed and then bad things happen to the person who had the account and then they turn around and sue the service industry. So... Uh, whatever the motivation is, they seem to all be taking a strong position. They cite the Stored Communications Act, which is a federal statute, and say that that is what precludes them from having to turn it over. And, um, you know, in the, in the Wall Street case that you mentioned, that one actually um, started out with the battleground being the, the defendant trying to quash the subpoena. And we have a court of appeals opinion on that, and they said um, you don't have an expectation of privacy. You don't even have standing in New York law. Uh, they, they focused on the Twitter terms of service and said that those the terms of service say that this account is designed to help you share information with the world, so people should be on notice that this information is going to be published. Uh, the court said that public tweets are searchable, and they said that the Stored Communication Act is relevant but wouldn't impede production. And it was after that ruling that the, the, then Twitter challenged it. And Twitter cited its own terms of service and said that despite what the court said, the users retain the rights to any content they submit so that they weren't giving up their rights and Twitter was going to attempt to protect it. So uh, I don't think there's been a ruling yet on what's going to happen there, but um, we'll see. And I guess Twitter and Facebook will keep challenging 
those sorts of requests. Well, I need to quickly interrupt Antigone. It's time for us to take a short break. We'll have much more on social media and litigation when we return. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the benefits of cloud computing. Now, what do you think the single biggest benefit to cloud computing is? In talking to our customers recently uh, about that very question, I was surprised with what came back with as, as a really resounding response, and, and that was that it's the convenience and the freedom that cloud computing affords them. The ability to get their work done from anywhere, whether it's at their office, at the courthouse, at home, or even if they're on vacation, they're able to get their work done where and when they need to get it done. Uh, the mobile aspect of things is also increasingly important. Well, with cloud-based software, you can access your data and software from your iPhone or your iPad, uh, your BlackBerry, uh, and other mobile devices. So for the uh, lawyers that are on the move, which is an increasing uh, proportion of lawyers, that's a, a really key benefit as well. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if anyone wants additional information on Clio, they can feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Promote yourself online with Legal Talk Network by becoming a featured lawyer. Your featured lawyer profile lets potential clients and referral attorneys get to know you in a five-minute podcast interview with Legal Talk Network, plus your photo, your bio, and your firm's contact info. Be part of the most progressive online legal network anywhere. Just call Legal Talk Network at 781-551-9960. That's 781-551-9960. Or by emailing admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Be a Legal Talk Network featured lawyer now. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com radio. That's PCLaw.com radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. Protect your firm's email with AppRiver. Send confidential emails with confidence using AppRiver's CypherPost Pro email encryption service. With CypherPost Pro, you'll control who sees your messages, and a patented delivery slip will show you when they're received and opened. There's no hardware or software to manage. You can cancel any time, and you get a 30-day free trial, all backed by AppRiver's phenomenal care. Visit AppRiver.com, that's A-P-P-River.com, or call 866-223-4645. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We are discussing the topic of social media and litigation with uh, attorney Antigone Payton, founder and CEO of Cloudigy Law PLLC, and attorney Ernie Svensson, solo attorney and the man better known to the world as Ernie the Attorney. 
And uh, Antigone, we just had to go to break and, and we just cut you off. But uh, do you want to pick up uh, on what you were saying? No, no, no worries. Yeah. Okay. So w- what I was um, what I was mentioning before we took a, a little break is Twitter and Facebook and a number of these other very large social media tools and, and companies are actually giving our data out, and it's primarily to the government. And interestingly, Twitter just released uh, information regarding government requests for user data. Uh, I think that they were following in Google's footsteps by releasing their first ever transparency report. And they were giving all of us information about who had requested information from Twitter the first half of this year. Now, interestingly, 80% of the requests that they got for data was from the United States, and authorities made 679 of those requests on 948 accounts. And actually, Twitter said it complied with 75% of the requests. So something for us to keep in mind, we have a lot of discussions about privacy and social media, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes with respect to moving our data and giving it to other parties. Well, I mean, Twitter is a different case, though, isn't it, than, than Facebook? I mean, Twitter, I mean, we, the Library of Congress is archiving uh, Twitter posts. I mean, do, you, when you put something out on Twitter, uh, you really don't know who you're putting it out to. I guess you do, because you know who's following you, roughly speaking, but you're, you're putting it out to the world. I, I mean, is, 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 do you see Twitter as a different case scenario than, than Facebook, say, where you have greater, stricter controls over your privacy and settings? Well, actually, with both, you have the option to uh, have private discussions or private sharing of information or some kind of controls. So, for instance, with Twitter, a lot of people are primarily using uh, public tweets. And as you note, the Library of Congress has been keeping public tweets since the beginning of Twitter time. Uh, you know, they think it's part of our cultural history and our heritage. Um, but you can have <laughs> a lot of direct book. message communications with others on Twitter, and the same is true on Facebook. And Ernie, what about, uh, what about jurors? I mean, uh, the situations have arisen where jurors are using uh, social media and the lawyers on both sides are using that to analyze who the jurors are on their panel? Yeah, we're having, I mean, there's several aspects with juror use of social media. Um, one is attorneys using it to gain more information about the jurors. And, um, so far that has not, you know, there really haven't been any rules saying attorneys can't do that. So if they are able to do it and they want to do it and they know how to do it, they can. Um, then there's the issue of jurors themselves using social media either before the trial or during the trial, uh, in ways that compromises the integrity of the proceedings, and that is really where the hot activity is because, um, you know, despite the fact that now we're starting, you know, judges give cautionary instructions and tell the jurors not to use the social media, um, the jurors don't necessarily listen or understand, I guess, and so we're starting to see a lot more verdicts getting challenged. Uh, As a result of that, there was a study in 2010 that said that there were 90 verdicts challenged since 1999, in 28 cases, there were new trials granted because of supposed uh, internet misconduct, which includes things more than just social media. But social media is a big part of it. The next question from that, I guess, is up from jurors as to the judge. Uh, have you seen any any situations uh, in which uh, litigation has been compromised by a judge's use of social media or inappropriate use of social media? I'll throw that out to either of you if you've seen that. I mean, I, I haven't seen a, a, 
case exactly. I know that the Ohio, well, Florida first ruled that judges should not friend lawyers on Facebook. And then there are other uh, jurisdictions that have addressed that question. And Ohio has an ethics opinion. And if you read the opinion, there are examples given of what they, they, Ohio says um, you can, but you need to use common sense, you know, is essentially what they're saying. And then they have examples of where judges didn't use common sense and did things like, um, you know, say to the other lawyer, hey, why don't we be friends on Facebook? And then on Facebook, they talked about their cases uh, that were pending and they were excluding the other lawyer and it was unseemly and inappropriate and the judge got reprimanded. So, yes, that kind of thing has happened. And we have that rule in Massachusetts now for judges. There was a case that I know of uh, that I heard of in which a judge was reprimanded, it, it, and it did actually affect the case somewhat. Where a, a judge friended one of the litigants in a case, uh, and they actually had some exchanges on Facebook uh, about the case, innocuous exchanges, but uh, still exchanges nonetheless. And when it came to light later on, uh, an order that the judge issued in the case was uh, was uh, lifted, and and the judge was replaced. But uh, I think stuff. Ohio would call that not a common sense use of Facebook. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, it wasn't common sense. There's probably not a lot of common sense uses of Facebook and uh, social media. What is it that that attorneys can do to educate themselves about uh, using social media in a more responsible way? And what about just generally educating the public about the, the pitfalls of utilizing uh, such a wide dissemination source? Um, well, I think that, I think that trying to educate the public is a great idea and that's, you know, we should do that as best we can. I think that realistically, the problem is, is greater than social media and I think we're just going to keep having these problems. So I guess for attorneys, the question is, what do you do about the fact that your clients might be doing this or that the, the opposing party might be doing this or that jurors might be doing, you know, what do we do about that as attorneys? And, the the message that um you know that I've always put out and that and Antigone I know agrees with and this is where we kind of started to bond is that attorneys um if you ignore it and say that this is foolishness that only teenagers do and you don't participate in it at all, it makes it a lot harder to understand how to make use of it or what to do with it when you encounter it. Um, it's kind of like e-discovery. I mean, e-discovery, you know, is, can be complicated and so forth, but at, at the root, it's about digital data. So if you understand how digital data works and where to get it, then you are better off in the e-discovery world than lawyers who have no idea. So the message, you know, that I would put out is learn how to use this stuff. And, and when lawyers say, well, but look at all these mistakes people are making, good lawyers are cautious and they understand how to evaluate risks. They're, they're not the ones at least the ones who, you know, lawyers who have common sense, um, you know, know, would know how to use this stuff judiciously. Well, they should. And if they do that, even if it's just in a sort of cursory way, they're at least getting a sense of how these tools work. Because if you have no idea how they work, then you don't know to do things like the public defender did in his case, which may have resulted in the acquittal that otherwise wouldn't have happened. So... You have to use the tools to understand them. That's the message. Well, that makes time sense. For us I, to, to, I was just going to say it's probably it's getting close to the time to wrap up the show, and and uh, want to give you both the opportunity to put together your final thoughts as well as your contact information for our listeners. So um, I understand that both of you have a new project together that you might want to talk about. So Antigone, let's start with you. Sure. So 
final thoughts, just to echo what Ernie said, uh, you know, we, we need to understand our client's case and the issues in the case. And I think we also need to understand social media. It's here to stay. It's not going away. And it's on an exponential curve when we talk about adoption. So we both get in to multiple tools. We play with them. We use them. We market with them. And that frankly, I think really helps us in our litigation practices when we're evaluating risk and determining where potentially relevant information uh, from our client or related to the case or the other side might be lying around. And so this is really about rolling up your sleeves and getting in. And if you feel like you can't get in for some reason, you need to hire either a vendor or empower somebody on your team some of those nice, bright young people coming out of law school now who uh, have great skills with computers and technologies and tablets. It's time to put them to use to solve this problem and uh, be a hero at the firm and help everybody understand how they can use social media. And then I'll turn it over to Ernie, and then we can talk about our new project. Yeah, well, I, that's exactly right. I mean, we need we need education. We need to try to understand these tools better for the reasons that Antigone said. and and. To that end, Antigone and I decided to write a book, create a website, um, and sort of take what we were doing independently and sort of on our own and quietly and privately and turn it into something that other lawyers could benefit from. So um, we have a website up called uh, socialsuits.co, not .com.co because you know, .co is the new .com. And uh, people can go there and uh, submit their email address, and then when we publish the book or start publishing information and putting things out, which we shall do shortly, um, they will be able to access that information and learn more about um, about these tools. Well, that's fantastic. I look forward to uh, following more about that and seeing the book. Um, and uh, I've already bookmarked socialsuits.co. Thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with us today, and really appreciate your participation. Uh, Craig, uh, how about you? What are your thoughts on uh, on this topic? Well, it's it's something that's surprised me for a long, long time that more lawyers don't readily understand electronic discovery, which you know obviously leads into uh, the aspects of Facebook and Twitter. They're the ones that are more sexy uh, because they tend to yield a lot of salacious results. But um, even just using electronic discovery in the course of a lawsuit doesn't seem as though very many lawyers are savvy about that. They understand how to use it or how to develop search mechanisms or even how to deal with their clients on it. And it's uh, something I see as sorely lacking and almost, uh, I guess, to the point of, you know, lawyers need to get a grip on this as quickly as they can because if they don't, uh, they may find themselves later on in in subsequent litigation dealing with malpractice lawsuits. I'm aware of at least one situation where lawyers ignored um, obtaining electronic discovery in the course of a case. I don't think they actually knew that they needed it. And then when the time came to put on their trial, they discovered that the one thing that they needed the most, the critical issue in the entire case, it was a large $150 million case, hinged on one piece of electronic evidence that no one had. And now those lawyers are facing malpractice lawsuits. So it just seems to me that you've got to get on board with this program. Bob, what do you think? Well, I really just to echo what, what you've all said here, I, regular listeners of this show will have heard me harp on this before, but I, I uh, have 
I think it's really important that the ABA uh, Commission on Ethics 2020 has proposed, uh, you know, a revision to the rules of professional conduct that would uh, make clear that uh, competence as a lawyer includes competence in technology and social media. Uh, that's something the ABA is going to be talking about in August. I, I think it's really important that lawyers become competent in technology and social media. This is what Ernie's saying. This is what Antigone's saying. This is what you're saying, really. Uh, and uh, I think we all agree on that. And uh, it's it's it is uh, surprising uh, at at the level of frankly of of incompetence about that that continues to persist uh, in the profession. And uh, it, you know lawyers are going to start to get in trouble because of that if if they don't get up to speed. So uh, so watch for social suits, lawyers out there. It's going to help you. Yeah, and I think we've done our job at trying to beat that drum. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, good. Well, uh, thank you yeah. both very much for being on the show today. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts and uh, your ideas about this. So, Bob, we want to wrap up and after thanking uh, Antigone and Ernie, we want to remind our listeners that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to legaltalknetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. Uh, yeah, and let me just add my thanks. I uh, really appreciate both of you uh, being here uh, with us today. And uh, we will be back next week with a, another great episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. Yeah, and don't, and don't forget to go to LegalTalkNetwork.com to download your Android app to access all Legal Talk Network shows and, and be on the lookout for an iPhone app that we should have out shortly. So we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.